Working late was a common occurrence for me at the time, and as I left the office well past sundown, I was mentally exhausted. Thanks for staying. Reports can't write themselves, my supervisor said as she left to meet her friends at their usual Friday night place. She knew I wouldn't object to the extra work since money was tight and I could use the overtime, but it was still a bitter pill to swallow each time I was asked. Student loans did a number on my bank account, and this was the only full-time job I could find that didn't pay minimum wage. I made just enough to live paycheck to paycheck, actually. I was renting a small house off Sadler Road, just far enough away to be considered in the country. It was a gray, single-story, two-bedroom place on a small lot with a carport in front in lieu of an actual garage. I had taken the liberty of converting the second bedroom to an art studio shortly after I moved in. Well, calling it a bedroom was generous, since it barely fit the meager equipment I had. An easel, drafting table, and a dresser filled with supplies took up all the practical space, leaving just enough for me to maneuver. It was a cluttered mess with papers and brushes and pencils scattered everywhere, but it was my mess. I had taken up painting as a teenager. I was helping a friend move a dresser into their upstairs bedroom when it slipped from his hands and came tumbling down after me. It knocked me off balance and I fell onto my back and before I had time to move, the edge of the dresser caught my ankle in the space between steps. It slammed into my chest afterward before finally going over me to break on the floor. One trip to the emergency room later, and I was laying in bed at home with a cast and sling, nursing a broken ankle, cracked shin, and three bruised ribs. This put a halt to all of my summer plans, and I was confined to a wheelchair for a brief period before I was healed enough to move to crutches. My mother suggested I do something other than mope around the house all day feeling sorry for myself, and brought home a small acrylic painting kit with an instructional tape. I didn't have anything better to do, so after she set it up for me, I followed the basic lesson on painting a tree. Once it was finished, I decided that the canvas looked empty, so I made some more trees, with the sky and clouds, and what almost passed as a stream cutting through the flat, green ground. I had managed to pass the entire morning without realizing it, and was surprised that I was proud of the thing in front of me. It didn't look pretty by any means, but it was something that I had created. It felt good to create, much better than the self-pity I felt before. I spent that afternoon making another landscape painting, one with mountains, working up until dinner time. My mother was as surprised as I was at how much I enjoyed it, and after I'd used up everything in the kit, she bought me one of the larger sets. As my creative outlet and main hobby, it took up a substantial amount of my time, and I kept painting long after the cast was off. I improved over the years, tried different styles, took some classes. I became good enough to be invited to art shows, and I started getting offers for my work from people outside of my family and friend group. It was never enough to pay the bills, but it was enough to cover the costs of making them, with a little extra left over. I pulled into the carport and killed the engine, already stressing about things I had to do at work in the morning. I got out and unlocked the front door, kicking off my shoes on the tile before walking onto the carpet. I was too tired to cook, so I threw some frozen burritos in the microwave and changed into some night clothes. The phone hung on the wall next to the fridge with a solid red light on. A new message. I hit the button and let it play over the speaker. A man's voice echoed across the kitchen. 
He introduced himself as Ray. He spoke politely and with a sense of professionalism. He said that he had seen some of my work in a gallery in Edmonton, and he was so impressed he had to get my contact information from the curator. He said he wanted to commission a painting from me. I felt my spirits lift and I forgot about work. It had been almost a year since my last commission, and I had been in a funk. He explained that it would be a portrait of his late wife, and that it would be a special project. I wrote down his number and made a note to call him before lunch. Portraits were one of my specialties, one of my favorite things to paint. For me, they captured more truth and beauty from the subject than a photograph could. It was after ten when I woke up, stretched across the bed in a tangle of blanket and sheet. I felt rested for the first time that week. I contemplated staying in bed before remembering the message from the night before. I got up and started my morning routine, and as I poured a cup of coffee, I decided to call Ray. He answered after a single ring. I told him I had heard his message and wanted to discuss the details of the project. He asked if I could meet him at the library that afternoon, and he would bring some reference pictures and we could discuss the price. He said he wanted to be clear about something up front about the project. He wanted it to be a life-size, full-body portrait of her. I had never done anything of that magnitude before, but it sounded more intriguing than daunting. I said I was still interested and he sounded pleased, and shortly after the call ended. If a deal was made and I accepted the job, I would need to buy a larger easel, and those weren't cheap. I made an itemized list of the materials I would need to make it and put a rough estimate of their prices. That total, combined with my commission fee, would most likely turn the man away, I thought. The vast majority of people really underestimate the full cost of a custom work of art. I met Ray in the lobby. He was a tall, thin man with neat white-gray hair and a freshly cleaned suit. He shook my hand firmly with a smile, and we took a seat at the nearby table. He told me about his wife, Darcy. They met at a mutual friend's birthday party and were pretty much inseparable from that point on. They had been married for 22 years, and the last two had been a constant losing battle with her cancer. After she passed, he traveled. She had made him promise her that once she was gone, he wouldn't shut himself off from the world, that he would go and see the things he always wanted to see. He retired early and left for a long stretch of time, hopping oceans and continents alike. He'd returned only a few weeks prior, and that's when he saw my work in the gallery. I asked him why he wanted a full-body portrait, and he said that he had seen many impressive portraits like that as he made his way through Europe, historical pieces hanging in castles and museums or in private collections at auctions. He and Darcy had a fondness for art, and he decided that he should have something made in her memory. I had a deep sympathy for the man. I told him that this seemed like an intensely personal piece, and I wasn't sure that I would be the best artist for it. I would happily make him a list of the best realist painters I could think of, since they could do it proper justice, but he shook his head. I want it to be you, he said. I've seen many others, all over the world, but none of them stir my soul the way your art does. I thanked him and asked him if he was absolutely sure. He handed me a few pictures. They were copies, he said, so I could take them home. Darcy was one of the most striking people I had ever seen. 
She was curvy, with long brown hair and piercing green eyes, sharp, high cheekbones with a small round chin. She was wearing a flowing sundress with thin shoulder straps, white with blue trim, tanned legs leading down to a pair of sandals. On the back of the pictures were various measurements and notes to make sure that the work was accurate. He said he had already put the materials together and could drop them off at my house. Part of the agreement, and he stressed the importance of this, was that I only use what he provided. That was the only caveat, and it was non-negotiable. It would be very difficult, I told him. He said he understood it would take time. I told him that before I agreed we would need to discuss pricing and payment. I told him what I charged for different sizes and subjects and how it broke down per hour. He reached into his coat pocket and withdrew a large envelope. I trailed off as he slid it across the table. Cautiously, I lifted the flap and peered inside. You're joking, right? I asked. I am not, he said, leaning back in his chair and folding his hands on the table. I picked it up, dumbstruck. Ten thousand, he said calmly. Heat flushed my face. I started to tell him I couldn't take it, but he held up a hand to silence me. Money is not an issue, he said. The other half will be paid when the painting is completed and collected. The other half, I thought. Jesus. There was a brief period of silence, and he asked if I would do it. I nodded slowly and said yes. He looked pleased. I gave him my address and we shook hands again. He said his polite goodbyes and left. I stopped by the liquor store on the way home and picked out a nice bottle of wine. This was a huge boon for me and could really help clear some of the debt I had accrued over the years. I knew that the next day would be serious, down to business time, but I wanted to celebrate. It was, without a doubt, the largest amount of money I had ever been in possession of, and there would be even more once I was finished. That night, my head was swimming with wine and the possibilities that the money had opened up for me. I went to bed with thoughts of travel, most likely stemming from what Ray had said. I also wanted to see the world, although I had yet to be given the opportunity. I drifted off peacefully into a deep sleep. I woke up to my alarm with a headache and immediately regretted drinking so much the night before. I dragged myself out of bed and to the shower. After taking some pills and getting dressed, I made a quick breakfast. I waited for the headache to subside and then started clearing my art room. I needed a lot of space, so I moved a few things into the living room. I had just finished when I looked out the window and saw a small moving truck headed for my driveway. Behind it was a sleek white sports car. The truck backed in and the car parked in front of it. Ray opened the door and climbed out of the car, well-dressed, as two men exited the truck. He walked towards the door as they began to unload it. I greeted him before he made it onto the porch and invited him in, and he called out to the men to put the equipment where I directed. I offered him a drink, but he declined. The men came in carrying a large easel, and I led them to the art room. They set it down in the space I had cleared and went back to the truck as I made small talk with Ray. They came back in with boxes that shifted and clanked, and I figured they were filled with the paints and brushes. They set them against the wall and left, coming back one last time with a large canvas. 
It was placed carefully on the easel. Then the man walked back outside to the truck. I didn't hear them say a word to me or each other the entire time. Ray said it was time for him to go, and he would leave me to my work. I walked him to the door, and he stopped, suddenly serious. Under no circumstances, he said, was I to use any of my own materials or tools for this project. If I did, the project would be canceled and the money would be forfeit, including the upfront that he had given me. I assured him that I wouldn't even think about using my materials, and his demeanor changed back to polite professionalism. He told me to contact him when it was finished and gave me his card. He stepped outside and paused. The canvas is custom, literally one of a kind, he said. It took a long time to make, even longer to find someone who could make it. Don't waste it. He excused himself and left, pulling out of the driveway with the truck right behind him. I went to the art room and examined my new tools. The canvas was made of a material I wasn't familiar with. It was a yellowing white, and as I ran my hand over the porous surface, it was softer than I expected. I opened one of the boxes to see what I would be working with. It was packed with mason jars, each filled with different pigments of a thick fluid. I took out a deep blue and unscrewed the lid. A sickly sweet smell drifted out as I tilted the jar side to side. Not oils, something new to me. I closed it and placed it back in the box, and opened the second one, which was considerably lighter. There were charcoal sticks and bundles of expensive-looking brushes, all different sizes. The bristles were hair rather than synthetic, dark, most likely Kalinsky sable hair, judging by the quality. Golden ferrules joined them to the ebony handles. I untied the twine that held them together and removed one of the larger brushes. My fingers instinctively found the hidden contours. It felt natural. The weight and grip were perfect in my hand. I set up a small table next to the easel and placed the reference pictures there. I was strangely confident, given the circumstances and restrictions. I studied the pictures, familiarizing myself with every shade, every line, every detail. Finally, I took out a charcoal stick and began sketching. I worked late into the night. It was slow and meticulous, but it had to be that way since I couldn't afford any mistakes. When I drew the last lines for the shoes, I stepped back to check my work. Darcy had been my height, making the sketch eye-level with me. Her expression was a sly grin, falling between joy and mischief. She was looking down into the side as she gripped her dress with one hand and the other hung casually down. She looked healthy and I wondered how long before the cancer the pictures were taken. I was covered in charcoal, and my hand was cramping. I peeled off my clothes as I entered the bathroom and turned on the shower. I had been thinking about what to do with the money all day, and decided that I wouldn't spend any more of it until I was done. I couldn't risk messing up and having to pay Ray back with money I didn't have. I went to bed that night dreading work more than usual. I was making a potentially substantial amount of money at home on my time, and going back into the office didn't seem worth it. I had to play it safe, however, and set my alarm early anyway. Over the next few weeks, I spent my time at work on autopilot until I could get home. I was no longer volunteering for work that incurred overtime, 
to the disappointment of my supervisor and the rest of the team. I could tell they were agitated and I couldn't care less. As far as I was concerned, my priorities now resided strictly at home. The painting was a little over half finished. I'd been calling Ray weekly with updates, and he would give his approval on my progress. I told him that by my estimate it would take another two weeks to finish, and I would keep him in the loop. I could have completed it sooner had I used traditional materials, but we had an agreement that I was adhering to. The paint, if it could be called that, had been tricky to work with. Large clumps would form in the jars if left alone and still for long enough, and more than a few times I had to take a break to stir it vigorously back to a workable consistency. The stench was so powerful that I had to open the window and prop up a box fan in it to air out the room just so I could stand to be in there. It wasn't a bad smell, but it was sharp and sweet. The canvas was, for lack of a better word, thirsty. It seemed that no matter how much I loaded a brush, the liquid would be absorbed after only a few strokes. The large amount of jars made sense after I discovered that. It required multiple coats in the same area to stop the absorption and get the true color out. It also dried overnight, which was surprising with the sheer amount that I was using each day. There was something worrying, though. I wasn't sure if I'd been seeing things at first, but a couple of times I would be working on it and step back to discover that the paint had shifted. Slight changes, like the folds in the cloth or the bend of a finger. After looking again, it would be back in its original place. I chalked it up to the lighting or possibly needing a break, but it was still eerie. If you've ever had too much to drink and tried to really focus on an object, you can understand what I mean. It seems to float off kilter before writing itself, but you know it never actually moved. I had stopped to take a break on the night before I finished, as I worked on her ankles and shoes. Hunched and squatted to reach the bottom of the canvas, it wasn't long before my back and legs were causing enough pain and discomfort to be distracting. I stretched and went to the living room. I grabbed a couch cushion and some pillows so I could lie prone on the floor while I worked to relieve the pressure of my joints. As I returned, I stopped at the doorway. I stood there, frozen. It wasn't a trick of the light, or fatigue. I hadn't been imagining it. She was looking right at me. That wasn't how I painted her. I painted her looking down and to the side, exactly like the picture. I had spent enough time on her face to know. I had seen it hundreds of times over the weeks. I squeezed my eyes shut and opened them again. Nothing changed. Where her expression was happy before, it had transformed into an unsettling, sinister look. I dropped the cushion and pillows and backed out of the room, closing the door without taking my eyes off the painting. I took a deep breath and waited with my hand on the doorknob just outside. I could hear the clock in the living room ticking away, louder than it had ever been. Eventually, I worked up the courage to open the door again, slowly. The painting came into view, and she was looking down again. Shit, I said in quiet relief. I closed the door again and walked to my bedroom. What was wrong with me, I thought. Had I been working too hard on this project? It wasn't just the money. 
which admittedly was a large part of it, but the longer I'd worked on it, the more attached I felt to it. I'd poured some of myself into the work, as a lot of artists do, and I felt a connection. Spent enough time creating a thing, and that's bound to happen, I suppose. I decided to call it a night and washed up. Before I lay down, I closed the bedroom door for the first time since I moved in. I paused, then locked it. I knew it was ridiculous. A painting had scared me. A painting that I had created from a blank canvas, nonetheless. But I felt safer with it locked. And as I went to bed, I decided to keep the lamp on. The next morning, I chided myself for being so scared over nothing. But as I left the room and passed the closed door in the hallway, I paused. Quit it, I told myself, and opened the door. Everything was the same as it had always been. I picked up the stuff by the door and put it all back in the living room before making coffee and breakfast. As I ate, I planned the rest of my day. With any luck, I could finish the painting before dinner. The notion of secured payment was very real then, and I was trying not to get too excited. I still had plenty of time to botch the entire thing, and I needed to stay focused and on task. After cleaning up, I changed into my stained painting clothes and went back to the art room and made a palette in front of the canvas. I had a mission, and I was committed to staying in that room until it was accomplished. I brushed aside the reservations I had from the night before and got to work. It took slightly longer than I anticipated, but an hour after sundown I was standing in front of the canvas going over it with the most critical eye I had ever allowed. It had to be perfect, for Ray and myself. After carefully scrutinizing, I sat down on the floor, legs sprawled out. I had done it. I had done it, and it was my masterpiece. I had never felt that amount of pride before. I called Ray. It was later than usual, and I wasn't sure if he would answer, but he did, and I told him that it was done. All that was left was the drying time. He was ecstatic. He would be by the first thing in the morning to pick it up, he said, and if it passed his scrutiny, he would give me the rest of the money. It was perhaps the greatest moment of my life. It would change so many things for me, for the better. I cleaned up and made dinner and drank a full bottle of wine with it, with another bottle as dessert. I went to bed drunk, with thoughts of grandeur. I woke up in the middle of the night with a full bladder. I tried to ignore it and go back to sleep, but that wasn't happening. I went to the bathroom and laid back down, and I was almost out when a loud crash rang out from the other room. My first thought wasn't an intruder. It was something more worrying. I stumbled quickly down the hall and flipped the lights on. I was praying it didn't come from the art room. I looked in and through the dim light, I knew something was wrong. I turned on the light. The easel had given out and the canvas had fallen backwards onto the floor. I was stunned. Surely the paint was still drying when it happened, I thought. There's no chance it wasn't defaced in some way from the fall. My masterpiece was most likely ruined and I was going to lose out on all of the money. I moved forward tentatively, praying that it was untarnished. I had barely taken a single step when my knees almost buckled and I had to stifle a scream. 
As I stared, my head was throbbing and a knot formed in my throat. I desperately wanted to move, but my legs were rooted to the spot. The instant I took it in seemed to stretch for minutes as my breath quickened and became shallow, and my resolve was staggered. My heart pounded in my head. Looking across the room, I saw a hand. It was a feminine hand, slender fingers extended and slowly tracing through the air as if searching for an unseen hold. It was reaching out of the canvas, not through the canvas, but from the canvas itself. I watched, transfixed, as the wrist appeared, then the forearm, the elbow, all the while the hand reaching and grasping. It moved in spasms, like an old film reel or stop motion. When the strap of the summer dress came through, something clicked in my brain and a yell escaped me, starting quiet and swelling into a primal roar. I turned to run and was stopped by a man. I was confused and terrified. He was looking down at me, tall and indifferent. I didn't have enough time to question why he was there. I tried to warn him to run and move past him, but a sharp pain permeated my skull and there was nothing but darkness. I woke up in my bed. The pain in my head was debilitating. I gingerly touched the spot where it originated from and felt a large bump. I laid there briefly before I started remembering what happened. The night before felt like a fever dream. I struggled to think if I hit my head and somehow I couldn't recall it. I rolled over onto my back with effort and looked at my clock. Instead of the soft red glow of numbers, I saw a large envelope on my nightstand. I set up and pulled it to me, barely taking a moment to think of how it got there. I looked at the neat letters on the front, squinting with tired eyes. It was a message from Ray, and simply said, They were right about you. She's beautiful. Your payment has agreed. I tore it open and looked inside. It was the other 10000 that Ray had promised on delivery of the painting. I slid out of bed, instantly nauseous. I had to check the art room. Limping down the short hall into the closed door, I readied myself and swung it open. I was taken aback. The door hit the jam and bounced lazily back towards me. It was completely empty. No jars, no brushes, no easel, no canvas. It was all gone. I slid down the wall. It was Ray's moving man that had been there. He was there for sure, meaning I hadn't dreamed him. The memory was sharp and clear at that point. Surely the canvas... That must have been a dream, I thought. I spent the rest of the day laying on the couch in a quiet daze, nursing my head and staring at the envelopes on the coffee table. I wasn't sure if I could believe what I had seen. I tried calling Ray a few times, but I was greeted with an automated voice saying the number was no longer in service. I entertained the idea of calling the police, but knew it would be hard to explain how a man broke into my home to steal art supplies and leave me thousands of dollars. The phone rang, and I let the machine pick it up. It was my supervisor. She was calling to inform me that I had been a no-call, no-show for two days, and my position had been terminated. 
My final check would be mailed to the last address HR had for me, and I could pick up my personal items from the front desk in the morning. I knew that was coming. She hung up and the room was quiet again for a second before another call rang out. Wow, they are persistent, I thought. I let it go to the machine. A different woman was on the line. Her voice was low and breathy, and she introduced herself as Claire. I thought it was a bill collector at first, but then she spoke the words that made me sit up and stare at the speaker. I saw your work in a gallery in Edmonton, she began. I loved it. I was hoping to commission a piece from you. You see, my son passed away last year, and I wanted a portrait done in his memory. Life-sized. You came highly recommended from Ray. Please call me back if you're interested. She left her number, and the call ended. I walked into the kitchen and wrote down the number she had said. Before I knew it, I was holding the phone to my ear and dialing. What the hell am I doing? I thought as it rang. Hello? Came over the receiver as she picked up. I clenched the cable with my free hand, knuckles white, eyes closed. I'm interested. <laughs>